Hi, my name is Michael Frank, and this is the Prefab Pod presented by Prefab Review, where we interview leading people and companies in the prefab housing industry. Today, we're speaking with Steve Weissman, the CEO of Tumbleweed Tiny Homes. Uh, nice to have you here, Steve. Uh, thanks for joining. Hi, Michael. Glad to be here and uh, spend some time with you today. Awesome. Uh, so uh, just to start, can you tell me a bit about the history of Tumbleweed um, Tiny Homes and how you became involved with the company? Yeah. So um, I was actually downsizing my life on for personal reasons back around 2001, uh, 2002. And at that point, I was completely unaware of the tiny house movement or the small house movement, as some called it. Um, but I progressively got into smaller and smaller places. And at one point, a friend of mine says, hey, I've met this guy who lives in a house that's even smaller than yours, and uh, you should meet him because he's getting some media press about it. And so I, she introduced me. Uh, he was in a tumbleweed. I just fell in love with it. And that was in 2006, and I started volunteering my time uh, with the company. And then in 2007, I wound up buying into the company. And this, So at the time, tumbleweed's just a, sort of a small business. And we're, you're somewhere in Sonoma County, or are you in Sonoma proper? Yeah, uh, yeah. It was, I was living in Sebastopol at the time. And okay. to call it small would be generous. Um, it, was, it, it was smaller than small. It was tiny. It was a tiny company. You know, at that point in time, the, uh, the revenue was about $4,000 a month. Uh, mostly came from selling like uh, plans for people to build their own. So originally, Tumbleweed, you know, the first Tumbleweed was built in 1999, and it sort of morphed into a business over the following years uh, as people were like, hey, I want one. And so when I got involved, Tumbleweed had a, a few house plans that you could buy and build from, and maybe every year one house would get built. Got it. Um, this is just like carpenters doing something kind of a non-scalable way in like someone's garage or a small ware- rented warehouse or something like it, that. Yeah, but it was the people who were buying the plans were were even less skilled than carpenters. So I think it was a lot of dreamers, a lot of yeah. idealists that were wanting to do something radically different than everybody else. Um, they really and and they wanted the place. They were doing it because they wanted to live there, and they wanted a place that would say something about who they are. It was a, a form of self-expression. Got it. And did you have a background in carpentry or anything like that? Or? Yeah, a pseudo background. So my dad was a contractor and uh, I was on site with him a little bit, you know, especially when I was younger, um, like in in um, high school and stuff, spending summers on site on the job site with him. I got some practice and then I did do a couple of uh, fixer uppers on my own. Um, so I had that experience. And besides that, I had previous business experience as well. I did real estate investing and I owned several restaurants before getting involved in Tumbleweed. Awesome. Okay, so 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 where we left our hero, you're a you're a small little whatever, doing a few thousand dollars a month of revenue. Yeah, building a building a like I guess a we're uh, just building on like kind of a standard trailer chassis, like a That's little home every year. And then yeah, so then can you talk a bit about the evolution? Yeah. So okay, so that was 2007 when I bought in, and of course in 2008 the housing crisis comes and hits us. And now we're scratching our heads saying, well, where does the future of this go? Um, everybody was getting out of their homes. The price for homes were coming down. And you, the way to buy one of these in the past was people would refinance their home and buy it. So recognizing that the sales of the tiny houses were going to all but disappear, we really focused on the DIY aspect. So we started uh, doing webinars around, not webinars, sorry, seminars in person around the country. Um, and that actually turned out to be pretty cool. It was a pretty good business model. We came out with a really nice book. Um, that sold very well. And so that kept us alive. And the movement started to catch on. And as the, we were the pioneer in the industry. 
So as the movement grew in the late 2000s, we started getting a lot of web traffic. And by, I think it was about 2013, you know, we really hit high on the web counts and we had 5 million visitors to our website in one year. Um, and at that point, you know, tiny houses were really starting to become a mainstream thing. And the next evolution was we're going to actually start building these in mass. And we became a licensed RV manufacturer. So we, uh, we got a plant and we actually got licensed and started building these. Got it. Okay. So in, in that plant was in, um, that was in Sonoma or that was in, cause you're in no, Colorado. That, yeah. So that was in Colorado Springs. So before then, you know, as I was mentioning, we'd sell about one a year. Yeah. Um, I'd work with somebody, we'd often do a backyard build. Um, and then as we said, we're going to get serious about that. It was in Colorado and it's, it's kind of a fun story. There were these um, brothers that grew up Amish um, and they came to one of our workshops and said, we want to build tiny houses and we wound up partnering with them. Um, and so they had a, a factory where they were building sheds and chicken coops. And so they started building some tiny houses there as well. Um, and as it grew, um, we got to a much larger space. So we, it's, and that's the current factory we're in now. We got a 20,000 square foot space. Um, and when it grew, they didn't, they didn't want to move on with the tiny houses. I think that they had their own ideas of where they wanted to go. So I wound up buying them out and doing it on my own starting in 2016, 2015. So by 2015, 16, I bought everybody out and it was just me. Got it. Um, and uh, yeah, and then what's what? So I, I mean, I know from the sort of website sort of, a bit about the number of models, but what does your sort of operation look like today in terms of number of homes being built, like yeah, number of people, number of homes being built at one time, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things I'm going to mention too, is that when we talk about this being a home, technically it's an RV. So RV, we build, sorry. yeah, so we build what's called a tiny house RV. Um, so everything we build is on wheels. The wheels are permanently attached and we have our factory running in two lines. They're both run shotgun style which means that we just roll the house up from bay to bay, front to back. So um, it's a five-bay process. And pre-pandemic, we were building about 80 a year. Uh, the pandemic really took a bite out of our sales. And so um, we dropped to maybe three a month. And so we went from about seven a month to about three a month. And right now we're trying to build back up. And that's a whole new challenge because the- that's, um, that's a consumer demand thing. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. because- we, we haven't heard that from sort of other parts of sort of adjacent industries, but yeah. Right. Well, one of the, one of the things that's kind of unique to us. So a lot of tiny home buyers buy in cash, um, but there's a certain percentage of the market that buys with financing. And that's really where our niche is. So almost all of our customers are finance customers. And when the pandemic happened, a lot of people were really hesitant to take out loans. And so, the, yeah. you know, the buying behavior really changed. Our cash sales did not decrease. In fact, they increased, but our sales, which I think it's like 80% of our sales are uh, finance sales, all, you know, they just, they went in the tank. They were hard to find. Um, even people that we had in the pipeline, some of them were struggling to get their loans done. Got it. So Once, let's, yeah. So yeah. I, I want to get into the models, but one of the, just since you're talking about sort of, not necessarily the demographics, but at least the sort of aspects of sort of some of the ways the purchase happens. What are people primarily using uh, your homes for? Are these primary homes? I've certainly wanted, we want to touch a little bit on the sort of the hotel stuff you have on your website, which is super cool. Yeah. Um, are these like, you know, as, as I said, rentals, or is it like multi-generational living? Like how does that break down? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a combination of all of the things that you can imagine. So, you know, there, 
the largest share of the pie, but it's still, I think everyone imagines, oh, we were just selling them for people to live in. And that's not true. So there are people who live in them. Um, there are a lot of people who buy them for rentals. So either businesses or even individuals buy them for rentals and just put them in their backyard. Right. Um, some of the Airbnb. rentals, as you see, yeah, the Airbnb rentals, but there's some people who do it as just a monthly rental. Oh, um, I see. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a lot of people who are um, getting them for, um, uh, I guess I'll call it an in-law cottage. So it's amazing, especially nowadays, there's so many families where maybe they have a parent or a child um, who they're getting this for to have them in their backyard, but it's not a permanent situation. Um, but they will choose this as an, as an alternative to having them live somewhere else. So we actually see this with a lot of, uh, you know, I guess I'll call it middle-aged adults caring for their parents, having a parent in the backyard. Or a lot of families with maybe a child that's a, an adult child that has special needs. Um, so that's another common um, theme. And the other one, too, is we do get people who use these as a getaway. Mm-hmm. Um, how re- When you talk about a getaway, do you mean they're actually pulling these, like RV style? Okay. Or you mean they're, yeah, uh, great question. No, so when I say a getaway, a getaway, they'll have yeah. some other piece of property where they, maybe they've got some land and they'll put this in the land. Yeah, um, but you did bring, bring bring up an interesting point of people who travel. That is a small percentage of them, but they they are out there. Um, of those in particular, they, there are two types. Um, we've actually had quite a few traveling nurses uh, get the tumbleweeds, and they'll you know it's for them. It's just a regular RV. They go from RV park to RV park, and every three months they're on the move. And then the other is military. So the military will uh, move people around every six months to a year, and they'll often pay for those transport costs. That makes sense. Got it. And you can just um, connect these to uh, like a pickup truck and pull them or it, does it have to be a bigger uh, something with more capacity than that? Yeah. So that your regular, you know, your regular uh, half ton pickup truck will not yeah. work. In, in the early days, the tiny houses were smaller and over the years they get bigger and bigger. The, the number one question we get asked is what's the biggest tiny house you build? Um, and, you know, back when I started, the biggest one we built was under 200 square feet. And now most of them are about 260. And so they're, they're, the weight is pretty substantial in the larger ones. It's not technically you could drive it yourself, but I would not advise that. Uh, most, you know, if anybody who's doing the traveling RV is getting a smaller size than the big ones. So, you know, and you asked me about the models. So we have we have four models. Um Two of them have been around for a very long time. They're the Cypress and the Elm. And they are much more traditional craftsman-looking homes. Um, and then we've got the two modern homes. Uh, we call them the Roanoke and the Farallon. Um, and so that's that's the combination. We keep it really simple with those four. Um, over the years, we've had different models. But I have a general rule that if something drops below 3% in sales, I just cut it. And then I I'll find something else to replace it. Yeah, I was um, going to ask you about that. Because, right, you've had four models over I mean, again, I understand that there's sort of been rotation, um, but right, like you have some models that have sort of stood the test of time and, you know, four is not an enormous number of, right. I guess maybe you have like what, like 16 SKUs or 20 SKUs or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, right. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. So, so can you talk a little bit about sort of the development of the different models, et cetera? Yeah. Well, the, the Elm model was the very, very first tumbleweed that was ever built. And that's the one that has the front full front porch in that iconic Gothic window. And, you know, I, I suppose even if that model dropped below 3%, I'd probably still keep it. Um, it is, it is the image of tumbleweed. Um, it is what people identify with tumbleweed. So that one's, that one's here to stay. And luckily it's, you know, it's not ever going to, I don't think it will ever get that low in sales. Then that 
um, model evolved into our Cypress, which has the the bay window on the front, the large triple window on the front. Yeah. So those are the two classics that have been around forever. Um, the Cypress uh, is our all-time bestseller. And then in 2016, 17, we came out with some newer models. So we had older models from before. Over the years, like a lot of models have come and gone. The most recent two, the Farallon and the Roanoke, they've both been very popular. Um, and so I'll, I'll tell you this right now, like the Farallon now is our number one seller. It's the number one seller That's largely right. because it maximizes the amount of space, you know, you're limited. And so the more of an absolute box you can build, the better. Now the trick is how do you do that and make it look pretty? Um, but that one has the most size in every dimension. So just by default, that's our number one. And the Roanoke has the, the the worst loft space. So by default, that's our worst seller. So next month, we're coming out with a, a redesigned Roanoke that fixes the, the loft problem. Because in that one, you can only sleep one way instead of either which way. So right. it's, a, it's a problem that's for some People are actually quite utilitarian when it comes to this stuff. It's actually not... I would have guessed the Farallon would be your best seller purely because... Uh, I mean, we have, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand people come to our site every month. So we get, I get a sense of, you know, at least for the sample size of people who visit us, sort of the aesthetics of what they're looking for. So I would have guessed would sell based on that. But uh, it sounds like you're saying uh, just sort of the, the spatial profile has a huge part of it. Yeah. So because our other homes are unique, so there's a lot of companies that make designs like the Farallon and the Roanoke. It's, there's nothing particularly unique about those, but the Cypress and the Elmar Farm were unique. So yeah. that's going to drive a lot more customer interest. Right. But when they start talking to the salespeople uh, and they start talking about their needs, um, sometimes they'll wind up switching over to the other model. That makes sense. Um, and, and when you talk about thinking about design on these, um, are you designing these in-house? Do you work with yeah. like an architect mm-hmm. of some kind or how's that work? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So in, in our design process is really different than how you would design a typical home. And, and I'm going to spend a couple minutes talking about this. So a typical home, you tend to lay out the rooms, you know, and so you lay out your kitchen, your bedroom, your living room, you put your window center over your sink, and then the rest of the house sort of evolves. And whereas with us, we're working with a very tight envelope, and um, we really try to focus on a, a beautiful exterior. We find that that's one of the main draws that we have is a beautiful exterior. So we design what we call from the outside in. First, we're going to design the exterior of the home. We want to have three windows. We use the numbers of three. So we either want to have three windows or we want to have two windows with three evenly spaced wall between them. And we try to space all the windows evenly among, uh, on the wall. That creates a whole host of challenges on the inside of the house. So that's the outside in. And as much as we can adhere to that, we do. So the outside of the house drives the inside layout. Um, It takes a lot more time to design a house. And then there's another factor that really affects the design of these houses, and that's the wheels. The wheels actually stick up into the house. So because of that, it affects everything from how you can put your bathroom in to your kitchen, and you want to cover those up as much as possible. So you want to put your stairs and your kitchen cabinets over those. So what happens in all of our designs is that the uh, stairs in the kitchen wind up in the middle of the house, covering up the wheels on the interior. Makes sense. Uh, Yeah. And so, yeah, so we design them all in house. Um, I would say that a lot of customers come and they want to modify it. We've done a lot of that, more of that in the past, and we've really honed into these are our designs. You can, change where the windows go on the bedroom and on the living room, but the core of the house, we don't move. 
Yeah. I mean, again, I think given your envelope size, it sounds like that you've been pretty thoughtful about a bunch of parts of that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so look, uh, can you tell me a bit about the process of being a uh, sort of working with you and being customer? So you, you go to your site, your site's actually incredibly, and this is one of the really nice things about your industry compared to uh, the kind of custom modular home industry I spend most of my time in is uh, <laughs> right because you don't have, have much variability, variability around sites in the yep. way they affect costs, um, at least in a way that affects your price. Uh, you know, you can go to the site and you can get a pretty credible quote right away. But so, okay. So I, I go through, I find a home I like, uh, I get a quote that looks good, whatever it's, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, $20,000 or what something along in that magnitude. Uh, what are the next steps from there from a sort of timing and perspective for customers? Yeah. So somebody goes to the website, they design a quote, they wind up, uh, contacting us, setting an appointment. We, we talk with them and, we usually do a lot of discovery questions in the first call. So we, you know, we try to understand where it's going um, and what's their timeline, right? So, and how they're going to pay for it. So the, the biggest challenges people have are three things, really, as I, as I just mentioned. When do they need it? Uh, where is it going to go? And then how are they going to pay for it? And so the the two obstacles in paying for it are, you know, if you're not a cash buyer, where is the down payment coming from? And can I afford the monthly payment? So before we ever get down farther, um, we have a very quick pre-qual on our website. It's a custom software I actually made myself. So someone can go in there and uh, um, it doesn't ding their credit, but we can actually match it uh, with the different lenders that we use and give them a very, very good estimate of what their payment's going to be. So once we have that and we say, okay, now we know that this is going to fit your budget, um, let's talk about your site. And so we talk about the site. Um and, you know, most people say, I know where it's going to go when they're ready, but they even even then they still need time to get the site set. And I and I believe that most people underestimate how long it's going to take. So if you're going into an RV park, snapping yeah. the fingers, it's delivered and hooked up. But if it's going in a backyard where most of them go, there's actually quite a bit of work that the customer has to do. And it's pretty simple, but it, it can take some time to get, especially in today's you know environment, to get the right people lined up to get this work done. So if it's in a backyard, you know, often there's access, you know, do I have to remove the fence? Um, then there's the grading of the land. The, it doesn't need to be a concrete slab, but it does need to be, you know, dirt it should be compacted dirt. Um, and then once it arrives, it, how does it hook up? You know, so there has to be a pedestal for an RV and it's typical RV hookups, but you need 50 amps of power. You need your water in and you need a sewer out. Or if that's not available, you go with a composting toilet, but then there's still the gray water question. So people have to think through that first. Um, and what we've learned is like when we've had houses in inventory, we typically only build um, to order. But when we have some in inventory and, and people want it, then they'll buy it and they'll go, oh, wait, wait, I still need two months before you deliver it. Right. That makes sense. Um, okay. So, yeah. So I guess a um, uh, bunch of questions there. So totally makes sense on the kind of infrastructure involved, et cetera. Um, from a, and I know you've written a couple articles about this on your site. Uh, it seems like one of the things about <laughs> RVs and tiny homes in general is there's sort of this, I don't know, romantic view of oh, like, absolutely. I'll, I'll like take this thing, I'll park this on this piece of land. Ideally, you know, <laughs> it'll have a wonderful view and we're good. 
Uh, right. Uh, so, you know, we get, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know how many emails um, someone else deals with them of, you know, great ideas like this, right? Like I just found this amazing piece of, you know, land in Nevada, it's $10,000 and whatever you can see a hundred miles. Um, can I get a tiny home and just park it there? Uh, so obviously you talked about some of the like kind of realistic infrastructure stuff mm-hmm. um, from a permitting standpoint, which is like yeah. another thing that we, we don't say, I don't think that we necessarily advise people like you need a permit though. Right. I think so that's a, that's a great question. So we do advise uh, people understand like how your local municipality feels about whatever you're going to do. Um, yeah. How, how do you, how do people handle that? Okay, so that's a great question, especially since we are an RV and not a house. And I think that really confuses a lot of the end buyers. Um, so let me let me go and talk about the two different. There's the building department and the zoning department. The building department says this is the code that you need to build a house to. So we're not a house. We're an RV. We have a different code, and, and the RVs don't meet that code. Then there's the zoning department, which says this is what you can put on your property. These are the sizes, and these are the requirements for that. So we fall under zoning. And as a general rule, if you're in a city, it's probably not allowed. And if you're in a county, it probably is allowed. Um, And one of the strange things that I found is that the more progressive the area is, the less likely it is allowed to actually have a tiny house on your property. And uh, so it's, it's kind of like if you look at red state, blue state, if you're in a blue state, you probably can't. Or it's a lot harder, and if you're in a red state, it's a lot easier. So unincorporated Texas, you can is it, is do whatever you want. This is just a red. This is a red tape thing. Um, it's, for the most part. It, yeah, it's well, it has a lot to do with the zoning codes, and zoning codes are, if you think about it this way, zoning codes are to to create a an environment where it makes good neighbors. And so, the more people you have in an area, the more likely there's going to be restrictions on what you can and can't put in your backyard, and then. The more out you are in the middle of nowhere, it doesn't really matter so much. There's not going to be that same level of requirement. Um, and typically, typically, if, if your intention is to live in one of these, um, it's almost impossible without a primary residence on the property. It's not like you can get a certificate of occupancy for an RV. So what, what's been happening in a few municipalities is they're saying, okay, well, we're going to allow people to get that certificate of occupancy and do that. But that tends to be more like in, you know, mobile home developments, things like that. So yeah. you might see it where you can buy a piece of property, but maybe it's part of a mobile home park that's not developed yet, but you can just buy a, a plot of land there. Right. Yeah. I, I know we've seen in a, in a it's kind of in a few sort of exceptional areas, like I believe Placer County, which is kind of like Tahoe area is one of them where they do have these sort of tiny house on wheels, more sort of progressive le- legislation, almost as kind of an extension of the ADU laws. But mm-hmm seems like that's kind of more definitely more the exception than the rule. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's it's changing slowly like you see, you know Los Angeles County is now right, allowing exactly that, another one. Yeah. And, and and at one point I don't think it's on the website at one point I remember writing an article about how long it ha- this is going to take and I saw this as a 15 to 25 year sort of progression to where it actually got to a point where it could get to a tipping point. Um it's it's there, it tends to be an S curve and we're still at the beginning, but it's starting to move a little bit faster to where now if there's a city or municipality that's looking to change their codes, they there's actually other municipalities that they can look to and say, okay, well, this is how they've done it in their code. We can just borrow from them. Um, so that's made the process easier. 
I think you may have answered this already, but uh, I I missed it if you did. So once people actually order the home from you, yeah, um, whatever, get financing if they need it. How yeah. long does the actual t- home take to build for you? Oh, that's a great question. So it depends on it depends on our build timeline. And you know, if you if you're at the end of the year, our timeline usually drops to about two months, and then in the peak of the year, it'll go up to about five or six. So right now, everybody wants one for spring and summer. So we're probably about five or six months out, but then come winter, it'll drop to about two months. Okay. And that's just basically like the home still only take a month or two to build. It's just, you might. Yeah. So typically when there's no material issues, the home will take four weeks to build. But right now we're having, as you know, so many challenges. Mostly mostly just windows. I mean, that's what we see from a lot of people or is there all sorts of stuff. Yeah. You said windows. Yeah. It's funny you should say that because I'm 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 dealing with window apocalypse right now. Yeah, um, everyone in building is still dealing. With yeah, that. so we luckily we um you know we years ago we used to do all custom size windows and years ago we decided that hey we're just going to go with standard size windows that you could buy off the shelf at Home Depot right. in case one of our windows breaks. So we did that and that's saved our hide right now. Um, our windows got delayed, delayed, delayed. Like we're, I was dealing with this morning. Um, and fortunately we can buy the same size windows at Lowe's and Home Depot, maybe a little more expensive, but we can, um, but we've seen problems with everything from, uh, composting toilets where it was just this one part was stuck on a barge and, you know, for months to, um, we couldn't get stovetops, um, air conditioners were a problem and you, you don't know what it's going to be. Um, every month it's something different and it's playing like it's playing, we're playing whack-a-mole and, you know, we've got say 400 components that go into a tiny house. You can't predict every one of them. So we're starting to stock them, but it's always like we're stocking them after the problem occurred, not before the problem occurred. Cause we just don't know what it is going to be. Makes sense. Um, okay. So I wanted to, uh, there's two more sort of key things. One is the, the financing question. Yeah. So, uh, just off the bat, uh, so you guys have like financing is a big part of your website in terms of it seems like getting people qualified, et cetera. Um, my from sort of doing a bit of diligence on financing for other RV companies, my impression is that if you're looking at this and you're comparing this to like an ADU or a home, financing is shorter term and more expensive from an APR standpoint. Is that right? And can you just talk a little bit about yeah, explain a little bit about like what financing might look like for one of these? Absolutely. So, um, for, and, and you're, you're hundred percent right for most tiny homes. So, um, for, for me, one of my key goals was to make it as easy as possible to buy a tiny house. And I have focused a lot of my energy on getting really good financing for customers. So the typical tiny house financing, um, is going to be seven to 15 years. And the rates are usually like eight to 12%. That's common. Um, we've got a lot better lenders. Um, so we're doing loans that are 25 years. Um, the rates are anywhere from about five and a half to seven and a half percent. So it's slightly more than a home, but not terribly more. Right. And then a 25 year term is almost the same as a 30 in in terms of, uh, the monthly payments. Um, and you know, if somebody qualifies for both, we'll give them the choice. You can do 25 years or 15 years, but almost everybody chooses the 25 year term. And then as far as down payment goes, um, so if your if your score is like five seventy five or higher, then you're twenty percent down. But if you're six fifty, it's ten percent down. And then if you've got really good income and credit, we can do uh, as little as like a thousand or two thousand dollars down. Okay, cool. Uh, and then um, and yeah, and what are rates are like five to ten percent right now, more or less on uh, the the lowest that 
the lowest in theory is like five and a quarter, I think, or five and a half. And mm-hmm. I've seen that like once or twice. Okay. Uh, most people are coming in around six and a quarter. Okay. Got it. Well, thanks for, thanks for being helpful on that. Uh, and then uh, I guess uh, the other area that I was pretty interested to cover is uh, the sort of tiny home hotels. You, you actually, yeah. uh, I was sort of, I, we sort of, you know, dug around your website a little bit and looked at cute. There were a lot of examples of people doing this. Um, can you talk a little bit about that opportunity and uh, also just how you deal with those? Uh, are you dealing with those people the exact same way as you're dealing with a normal customer? It looked like there were, you had some sort of special financing deals potentially with those type of clients, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so the, the tiny house hotel is a, is a very different customer. So a few yeah. of them actually started off as a regular customer and then converted it that way. Um, but the vast majority say, hey, I just want to do a vacation rental. So for first off, the financing on those is different. The lender always is going to require at least 20% down and they'll only do like a 15-year loan. They won't go longer. Um, but beyond that, it's a combination of businesses and individuals. Yeah. And so in the past, we've actually found the park and then found people who wanted it and kind of put them together. But we stopped doing that. Um, at this point, it's we're, we're, we're really hands-off on it. Basically, if somebody wants to buy one, we'll put it on the website. We'll promote it. Um, you know, We'll do what – if you say, hey, send out a newsletter about it, I'll send out a newsletter about it. Um, but it's up to them to do it. They'll, they'll put it together. And so um, we've got one customer that's done a whole bunch. I think they've bought 25 from us now. And then there's others where – you know, they've bought one and another, you know, some buy three and some will just buy one and that's all they're ever going to do. And I think you, you made, there's a note there about like, I don't remember if it's you doing a hundred percent financing. Uh, yeah. How's the finance? Or is that a thing? Uh, just cause like I can, we, we basically get people all the time who come to our, our site and are okay. like, Hey, I've yep. got this winery in the central Valley of California. I, I just, I, I do one Airbnb and it's killing it. I want to put four more RVs on that. Yeah. Okay. Great question. So when it comes to hundred, you asked about hundred percent financing. Yeah, yeah. So business financing is entirely different than individual financing. So yes, it is possible to get a hundred percent financing. It's always tricky. And my advice is that it rarely ever is worth it because just putting a little bit down usually lowers the rate substantially. Yeah. Um. So, you know, it sounds nice, but it's not the best, but one of the things we can do is since we are a, technically a, a vehicle dealer, yeah. we are allowed to take trade-ins. So we have taken trade-ins on used RVs, on a motorcycle, on, on an Airstream, on a truck, on a car, and that could be the down payment. So yeah. something that you see is worthless to you might actually be worthwhile from the financing point of view. Um, but yeah, for businesses, if they wanted to go 100% financing, the, the lender is going to want to securitize the RVs. So when they buy them, they're going to have a loan and they're, they're always, their concern is always the same. If I've got four of these rentals with this one place on this one property, and that's the only loan I'm doing, what if they default? That's a huge portfolio risk. So that they'll probably require some down because if you think about it, let's say the house costs a hundred thousand, there's probably going to be about $7,000 of taxes, you know, a delivery fee on top of that. So by the time you're all done, it's 115% of the price of the house. So even when you put 10% down, the loan is probably more than the base price of the house. So there's considerable risk for the lender. Got it. And then what, uh, are there specific lenders that you've had a really good experience with or that you work with on the site or like, can you talk about who they are? 
Um, I probably don't want to give away my best lenders. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I know, like, I don't think that this is who you use, but I know for sort of some of the less expensive people, like you see Lightspeed, for example, which I think is basically oh, Lightstream. Yeah. Lightstream, yeah. Yeah. So we, we do which have a few customers who go through them every now and then, but. That's not um, RV specific. I think that's more of a, like, kind of a personal. Uh, correct. And they have, they, they require a 700 credit score or higher. Right. So. Yeah. And I think it's like 50,000 of income. So not a whole lot of people are going to qualify for those right. loans. You know what we have. So we do have lenders that will do beyond a 45% to, to income ratio. So mm-hmm. we've seen people with a decent, you know, a credit score, say of 660 and, you know, making $2,000 a month get qualified for a tiny house, which is really fantastic. Right. Um, so we, with Lightstream, that's just not a possibility. That makes sense. Um. Awesome. So just, this has been awesome. I'm just seeing if there's anything that you've been, this has been really helpful in terms of learning a bit more about uh, your product. Uh, in terms of uh, kind of moving on to, we want, we try to do a fire round anytime we do this, which is just, you know, asking experts like yourself a few kind of more general questions that we get all the time. So hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, we can do that with you and yeah, yeah. try to get your answers to a minute or less, but we're not too much of sticklers on that. So I guess question number one I had was around snow loads. So again, I understand you're not technically homes, but like we do lots of homes in Colorado and Tahoe and stuff like that. And, you know, we we have areas where we have to build for whatever, 250 pound snow loads. um, And that affects the engineering and some other types of things. Uh, In terms of uh, your homes, are they basically good to go wherever or is there special sort of stuff you have to do to make sure they're able to perform in like, you know, heavier snow load areas? So this is such a great question and it goes beyond just snow loads. If you think about what we're doing, we're building them in Colorado and then we're shipping them what I call four corners and four seasons. So we ship to the four corners of the United States and it has to survive all four seasons. And we don't always know where it's going. And just because you put it in one spot doesn't mean you won't, just because you put it in one spot doesn't mean you won't move it to another spot later. So um, we do sell some to the mountains where they're 9,000 feet or more, and that creates a whole set of issues that are unique. Um, so beyond the, so there is the snow load. Our house has a snow load of 75 pounds per square foot on the roof. We can't up it a little bit, but if you came to us and said, hey, I need it to be 250, we would just say, sorry, that's, you're not going to get there with this house because um, you probably need to get to something like 2 by 10 framing, and that's just going to change the dimensions of the house too much for it to work properly. Um, so I think I, I, I believe, and I'm, I'm guessing that we've gone past a little bit past a hundred, but that's probably the max. And what happens is you wind up putting more posts throughout the tiny house and it can really break up the flow of things. Um, and then beyond that, you've got to think about your windows. So at high altitude windows will crack. So we have to get special windows for those higher altitudes. We now put those in all of our homes because so many of them go all over the place. And then the other thing to consider too, is that if you're at those altitudes, you're often using liquid propane. So in that case, when you move the house, you're going to have to reset everything. And a lot of, uh, a lot of like propane water heaters will not work at that altitude. Got it. So, so that means you just, uh, you have, uh, you have specific changes you make to, uh, make homes work at that altitude. Well, as I said, like the, what we used to, but now the windows are standard. We do the uh, high altitude windows, no matter what, we're only buying the appliances that work at all the altitudes. Now you may have to adjust the, you know, 
the knobs and fittings on your stove based on the altitude you're at. And you're going to have to adjust the water heater based on your altitude. So if you set it for here for 9,000 feet, and then you move it to California months later, it's going to have to be reset. Um, but the snow load, as I said, it's, it's 75 pounds. And then if somebody needs more, that would be engineered on a case by case basis. Um, but if they said I need to be 250, too bad. We can't do it. Um, but also the other thing is the installation value, right? The R value. So that's a question we come up against more often than the rest of them. Yeah. The um, And we don't adjust our R values. And the way I describe it is like this. It, think of a car. Your car probably has R1, but you can heat it up really, really fast because it's such a small space. Um, and it's the same thing with a tiny house. You can heat a tiny house very quickly. Um Changing the insulation is just going to make that slightly more efficient. But it, once you do that, the whole envelope changes and the everything that we plan really doesn't work. If we have to go to two by six wall framing, it's a whole new house. So um, it doesn't it doesn't work. We could we can put a better insulation quality, like maybe increase it from an, instead of an R13 to an R19 in the walls. But that's about as good as it's going to get. Got it. That makes sense. Um, Okay, so that's helpful to understand. Um, so, like, I think I think I saw there was a, a like a hood hotel or something like that. Yeah, I assume they have pretty high, so they're just able to make it work with your sort of your standard. Yeah, so that yeah, it, it, our homes will work in you know in freezing temperatures and really hot temperatures. Mm-hmm. So we send them everywhere. That Mount Hood Hotel is not an issue, yeah. um, and that was the first tiny house hotel that we did um, in partnership with Equity Lifestyle Properties, mm-hmm. and, and they're the ones that have the hotels throughout the country and they do a fantastic job on theirs. Yeah. That's great. Um, okay. So this is actually kind of actually kind of connected to this last topic um, in terms of insulation values. So can you talk about the capabilities um, of your homes for off grid? Uh, is this something you see frequently? Like you talked about figuring out the sort of compostable toilet and gray water. I know your homes are wired for solar, um, but oftentimes, I mean, I don't know in your home situations, sometimes I think being, Solar connected doesn't actually provide as much power as people need. So how, how do they work for uh, the off-grid situation? Okay, so you're asking me a question that I could probably spend half an hour talking about. Okay. Uh, so to, to sum it up quickly, you know, it's there is not a one-size-fits-all for going off-grid. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll, I'll break it down into components. So there's pr- primarily two issues for going off-grid. One is your power supply, and the other is your um sorry your water's you know water wastewater those type of things so let's start with the water supply if you're totally off grid you're going to be bringing in those five gallon buckets of water and then we're going to put in a water storage tank and pump so you're going to pour that into your house that's going to be your reserve and it's going to pump it throughout so we've done either a 25 or a 40 gallon reserve like that and then when it comes to your power you've got a few choices so solar is one way to go we do not sell solar panels. We are not solar experts. So what we do is we make the house solar ready um, so that everything's set up, all the wiring's done. All you can, We put in what's called a Yeti Gold Zero, um, and everything just plugs into there, and we make it so easy. So you can pick your, your items that you want with the flip of a switch. I want these on the solar, and I don't want those in the solar. And then you would work with a contractor for the batteries and the panels that you need. Depending on where you go in the country, that requirement's entirely different from location to location. Um, so that's something that, that that person will help you with. In addition, 
if you think about it this way, when you're doing solar or using electricity, it's things that produce a lot of heat that take the power. So you're going to want to go with propane. And you're going to have a propane water heater, a propane heat system, and a propane stove. The All the other appliances we use, everything we do is energy efficient. I mean, you could do the propane fridge, but I'd probably advise against it. And in general, if you do not need propane, I would say get away from that. Um, the other thing is that they can also do a generator. But one of the biggest challenges that tiny homes actually have is the challenge of moisture. So you've got a very small space. It's usually very well wrapped. And even just putting a couple people in there, if you're both staying in there through the winter and it's damp outside and cold outside, you're getting all that condensation. And then you throw in propane heat and now you're adding even more condensation into the tiny house. So it's just, it's a risky thing. The other thing is that you've got to keep that air circulating. So one of the things that we do is we put an air exchanger in every unit. But the nice thing about the electric heaters is electric heaters, if they're on, they're going to exchange and they're going to put in a dry heat versus a wet heat. And they're going to also pull moisture out of the air. So if you don't have that and you're just going with propane, you're really running a risk of a lot of condensation in the house. Got it. That makes sense. Uh, so how, but I mean, but you're, are you regularly seeing people use your homes in an off-grid situation? <sighs> you know, it, I would say it's probably, I, I, I would say that 20 to 25% probably say I might do this at some point. Um, and so that's why we build them so that it's easy to convert. We do the whole ready thing. Um, but I, off the bat, I would say maybe 10% have some form of off grid, actually more than that. It might be more like 25%, but it has more to do with the water on the composting toilet. So, um, I'd say a lot of people compost because they're not hooked up to sewers and then they'll, uh, they'll figure out what to do with the gray water. Either they're uh, catching the gray water and dispersing it and carrying it out later, or they're using it to garden or something like that. Right, and then uh, sort of final um, question we get on this stuff is uh, what do you recommend from a furnishing standpoint? Uh, I I always think that like, I don't know if you've actually looked into having furnishing packages, but your homes are like, you know, so specific and so sort of standardized from a room setup that uh, like in some way for certain people it would actually be easier. And I think some companies do this to just have a furniture package, um, right. but are there sort of products um and sort of other interior design things that you think work particularly well for your homes inside? Yeah. So um, we actually started doing built-in furniture at one point and we wound up having to take it out because customers didn't really want it. If they want something, they'll be specific and tell us what it is. Yeah. Um, What I've learned is that most people who are getting a tiny house, they already have the furniture they want picked out. Either they own it or they've got a Pinterest board and the only time that we've been asked to buy furniture was on the rentals where it's a business and you know, they want the house delivered with the furniture in it. That makes Um, sense. And that's, that's rare and and, and few and far in between. Got it. Okay, cool. Are there certain types of things that you think make a lot of sense, like certain types of, I don't know, sleeper sofas, et cetera, or is it, you know, you see all, all, all shapes and sizes. Yeah. We see all shapes and sizes to say if there's something specific, you really, there's really, not a whole lot of space for furniture. You're, you're limited to, if you've got an office, you've got maybe your desk space, right? That you might want to do. You can put like one couch and um, 
you really can't bring a table in there. You've got your mattress, but you don't have a, you, maybe you could bring in a, a bed frame if you have something that would fit, but it's, it's really limited in what you can bring in your, when you think about larger pieces, it's probably about three items of furniture at most that you can fit in there. That makes sense. Um, well, this has been really uh, great to, thanks for you pass the fire running with uh, flying colors. Uh, it's uh, the sort of final question we ask everyone is what are you most excited about, about your, for your company or the industry for the near future? Most excited about um, that's that. So I'll, I'll tell you, I, I nerd out on certain things. And so my answer is completely nerdy. Um, and it, it has to do, I, I like to build systems and I'm actually working on this new system for our CRM. So we use a standard CRM and uh, I've been building a, an extra whole set of programming that works in the background um, that helps us manage our customers. Cause we have, we have about a hundred thousand leads of people who've done quotes and that's just too many. So you have to figure out who to contact when. And so I'm actually really enjoying that. There you go. All right. I don't think we've gotten a, a CRM answer yet. So um, that's your first. Um, well, Steve, it's been terrific learning about uh, you and your background and uh, Tumbleweed Tiny Homes. Uh, so thanks again on that. For more information for everyone out there, uh, you can learn more about Tumbleweed at tumbleweedhouses.com. And as always, you can uh, visit us at prefabreview.com. Thanks again, Steve. All right. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it.